Uh, as some of you know, uh, I have been preaching through Ephesians this whole uh, semester as well as going into next semester. This has been such a wonderful letter, uh, just in terms of what uh, God has revealed through his Apostle Paul. And it's been a blessing for myself. I pray that it's been a blessing for uh, my ministries, and I pray that it'll be a blessing for us uh, this morning as well. Uh, so again, that's going to be Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15, verse 19. Well, as I was looking over this passage before, I learned about a man named William Hurst. Uh, He was born in the the late 1800s, lived to the the uh, mid-1900s, and he was an uber-wealthy newspaper guru. Uh, If some of you guys have followed history, you know that he made his fortune off of probably what was the most popular newspaper of America back in that day. Uh, He was a maverick. And many of you know him if you've been to a place called Hurst Castle. Uh, That was actually his structure, which, because he had so much money, he decided to pour it into that wonderful structure uh, that is now available for everyone to see. If you've never been there, I would encourage you to check it out at some point in the future. Uh, But as a man that was extremely wealthy, uh, one of his bougie hobbies, of many, was to collect art from all over the world. In fact, he invested a very large percentage of his fortune to try to collect some of the best, some of the most exclusive, some of the rarest pieces of art from all over the world. And at one point, uh, he actually boasted that he had almost one-fourth of the entire world's fine art collection. It was something he just enjoyed doing, collecting art from all over the world. And so there was one very fateful day that he read about this one particular piece of art, which he thought that he just could not live without. He felt hungry for that piece of art. He wanted to find it. And so he told his agent to scour the earth. He said, I want you to find this piece by any means necessary. No matter what it takes, find this piece. But after a couple months of searching, the agent was a little bit discouraged because it turns out that no one knew where this particular piece of art was. It seemed like it had been lost to history. Uh, But after several months of searching, the agent finally found it. And William Hurst was ecstatic. He went to his agent and said, where was it? Well, it turns out that this particular piece of art had been in Hurst's own warehouse for quite some time. He had it all along, and he had actually bought it years ago. And now this, my friends, is what you would call irony. Right? It's ironic to have so many months and so many hours to look for something that you already have. It's ironic to think that you can have so much money, uh, so much finances, that you can own so many things and not even know what you own. And I think for a lot of us, we recognize that this tends to be the problem, not for most of us regular people, but for those that we will consider the wealthiest of the world, right? The billionaires of this world. You know, you think of the people that have, you know, 20 or 100 different cars in their garage to the point where they even confuse which key is which. Right? They don't even know where to find their stuff. And we think those are the people with those kinds of first world problems. It is the uber wealthy that have too much that they don't even realize what they have. But as we get to the letter of Ephesians, and especially our passage here, what Paul is trying to tell us is that this is the problem for every single Christian. That we have more than we can even fathom. We have even more than you can even dream of having. Right? When you look at this letter, starting in verse 3, Paul is praising God. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And the idea there is that God has given us everything. 
He's not just given us some of the blessings he could have given. He's not given us some of his grace. He has given us everything in Christ. That our cup is overflowing with his grace, with his mercy, and everything that he could give, he has given to us. But the problem that he recognizes, the problem that we're going to see in our passage this morning, is that though we as Christians can't have everything, we can so often think of ourselves as poor. We can so often neglect and actually see what it is that God has given us, that we live our Christian lives thinking we need just one extra thing in order to be satisfied. And we don't recognize just how much God has given us. And so what Paul is going to say is that this is actually really just the the natural tendency for all human beings. It's not the problem just for immature or weak Christians, but our human tendency is to not realize what we have in God. And so that's why when you turn to verse 15 of this first chapter, Paul begins a prayer. He prays for the Ephesians. He prays for the area of Asia Minor. And he prays for us that we would understand what it is that God has given us. Because though we may have everything, that doesn't mean that we even realize what it is that we have. And so just as Paul prays for us, I think what this passage is saying is that we as believers, we need to be intentional. We need to be regular. We need to be habitual in asking God for insight. That we need to be praying that God would help us to understand what it is that we have. See, it's not that we need to gain something new. It's not that we have to ask God for something more of his, but we already have it all. And the question is, do we understand? Has God given us the insight to understand what it is that he has already blessed us in Christ? And so this is the whole point of the passage. And so if you have your Bibles open, we're going to read together, starting from verse 15. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that this morning you would help us to understand your word. That you would give me clarity of speech, that you would give us clarity of mind and of heart. That though we may naturally be led astray by the distractions of this world, that you would help us to understand what it is that you have revealed through your holy word this morning. So we thank you and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we break down this passage, we're going to see this just very simply in two parts. Uh, Verse 15 and verse 18, you see the ask for insight. That is, Paul is praying for us as believers for understanding. And then verse 18 and verse 19, you see the areas of insight. You see how Paul is praying for three specific areas that we would grow in our understanding of what God has given us. And so first we have in verse 15 and verse 18, the ask for insight. You'll see that verse 15 starts with, for this reason. You know, this is really the the second part of Paul's letter. As you're going from the very beginning all the way through verse 14, Paul was explaining what it is that God has given us. 
And he's praying really in three different sections in that first part of his letter. See, what you're seeing is that God has given us all of his blessings, and that's manifested through all three members of the Trinity working together. He starts off by saying, God has elected us. God has chosen us as believers to be his sons and daughters. And God's election for our salvation has nothing to do with our human action. He doesn't elect us based off of how good or bad we are, but his sovereign election, his adoption to us as, our, as his sons and daughters is something purely by his grace. It's something because that he chose for us to do. He has elected us. And as you go through the next part of that passage, you see how it is Jesus Christ. It is through him that we have our redemption. That though we were in bondage to sin, though we were slaves to our evil ways, our flesh, that Jesus Christ has purchased us out of our slavery through his blood on the cross. It is through his grace, it is through his righteous life and his death on the cross that we have our redemption, our salvation from sins. And you see in this third part how now in Jesus Christ, we have an inheritance that the Holy Spirit acts as a seal. That because he is in us as believers, when we see the fruit of him in us, that is the guarantee of our inheritance. That we know that we are now citizens of God's kingdom. We now belong to God's kingdom, not here on this earth. And that because we are citizens of a new kingdom, because we have this new inheritance, we live in a totally different way. We don't live in the way that we once did following the, the course of this world, following the course of Satan, but we live as heirs to God's kingdom. And so it is in the beginning part of this letter that Paul is breaking down the wonderful blessings that we have. And now as we turn to verse 15, he, he is changing his motive. He's now praying for us. And you see, the reality is, as Paul is writing this letter, he didn't know most of the people that he's talking to. If you've studied history, you know that Paul had been to Ephesus on several times and he had ministered there on one of his missionary journeys. He had seen many converts made. He had ministered to many different people. But by the time you get to this part of history, it's been probably several years since Paul had last seen this congregation. He didn't know many of the people anymore. Uh, just think about this church or your history of churches over the, the course of several years, how much fluctuation you can see. And so he probably didn't know most of the people he's writing to. And also this letter to the Ephesians was most likely a, a circular letter for the entire region of Asia Minor. That it was meant to be delivered to all the churches around modern day Turkey. Many different believers that Paul would have never even seen. And that's why if you're reading this letter, you see that it has a very sort of general feel to it. There's not a lot of personal references Right? If you look at uh, Philippians, you see how Paul addresses two women that are feuding by name. He's very personal in the way that he addresses people. If you're to go into the letter to the first Corinthians, you see how Paul is picking out very specific sins. He's saying, stop doing this and start doing this because he knew very much who he was writing to. But when you look at Ephesians, you see that it's a very general feel to it. He's writing to a lot of people that he did not know personally, and yet... Paul was confident that he was indeed writing to believers. Though he had not met many of these people personally, he knew that they were Christians based off of the testimony of two things in verse 15. He says, I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. 
Paul was confident that they were believers because he heard about two things. They were known for two general things. First being their faith in the Lord Jesus. That even as we are getting to in the gospel of Mark, the belief in Jesus as the Messiah, Savior, the God-man. What it means to trust in Jesus as Lord is to say he is the master of life. That you are fully surrendered to him. That in everything you do, everything you think, everything you are aspiring for, it is for the purpose of serving God. It is for the purpose of serving Jesus Christ. And when you were to call Jesus Lord, that was a very big deal. Because for the Jews, that was the term that they used for Yahweh. Some of you know that the Jews did not want to use the personal name of God, Yahweh, because they revered it probably to a legalistic extent. But so they they would often call Yahweh Lord. So there's only one Lord in this universe, and yet the Christians of Paul's day refer to Jesus as Lord. They had faith. They had a theological conviction of who Jesus Christ was. They were also known for a second trait, love toward all the saints. As you've seen in the letter of 1 John, as we know throughout all the Gospels and the epistles of the New Testament, that as Christians, one of the marks of our faith is a genuine love for the church. That even as unity is the focus of this letter to the Ephesians, Paul recognizes that if you are saved, that is seen in how you care for one another. That there is a genuine love and concern for the well-being of all the people in your midst. And that as Paul would have heard testimonies of all of these different churches in the region of Asia Minor, he knew that they were saved because he heard about their love for one another. And that makes me think just briefly about our church here. As non-believers come into our midst, as they see these services together, what would they see? What are we as Calvary Bible Church known for? Are we known for our deep faith in the Lord and Jesus Christ, that we know exactly who it is that we follow, that we have a deep theological belief in him being the Messiah and our Lord? And would they see a deep love for one another? Would they see a genuine care for one another? That is unlike anything else that you can find out there in the world, because that is the mark of a true believer. That is the mark of the believers today, and that is the mark of believers in Paul's day. But I digress. Because Paul is just bringing this up as he's leading into his prayer. See, what Paul is really doing is that because he knew they were Christians, because he saw these traits in them, he wanted to pray for them. As you look in verse 16, he prayed regularly for them. It says he prayed unceasingly for them. And as you turn to verse 17, you see the content of this prayer. He prays that God would give them the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him. That first word spirit can be interpreted two ways. Some of your Bibles would say that God may give you the spirit of wisdom. And some of your translations say that God would give you a spirit of wisdom. And that is because it can go either way. That spirit could refer to the Holy Spirit. That is the one who must work in a person's heart to help them truly understand spiritual insight. Or that word could refer to the spirit of a person, their inner being, the the true depths of who they are. But the reality is either way, Paul is praying for the same thing, right? Because it must be the Holy Spirit that works in the human spirit to understand spiritual truth. And so Paul is praying that we would have a spirit of wisdom and a revelation. 
He's praying that we would have spiritual insight into the depths of the truth of what he's saying. As you're hearing the Bible, as you're hearing God's word, and even as they would have heard it back then, that you cannot just understand spiritual truth on your own, but you must have a spirit of wisdom and of revelation. And he uses such a wonderful picture here. He prays that the eyes of your hearts would be enlightened. That you would not just hear it as academic information. That you would not just hear these words as some kind of truth that you can recite on command. But that from the very depths of who you are, on a spiritual level, on a personal level, that the eyes of your hearts would be opened. That you would understand the spiritual matter of what he's saying. As you guys know, we've been going through the gospel of Mark. And one of the big themes that we are seeing even recently is how many people, they see Jesus, right? They see what he's doing. They're watching him interact. They're watching him teach, but they don't understand, right? We've recently seen the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000. Miracles which are not possible by any mere human, And yet so many people, even the disciples seemingly here, they didn't fully understand what these miracles were showing about who Jesus was. It was even last week how we saw the feeding of the 4,000 and as the disciples are going away and how Jesus is warning them against the, the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod, they don't understand what he's trying to say. That instead of recognize that he's warning them against unbelief and the disbelief of these other leaders, They instead think to one another, Jesus is mad at us for not bringing bread. They don't understand what Jesus is trying to show to them by his miracles. They didn't understand the spiritual significance of his work. They were still hard-hearted to a certain degree. They still did not understand what it was that Jesus was saying here. And so in the gospel of Mark, in our passage here at the Ephesians, we're saying that understanding God's word understanding what it is that he says to us, that is not a human faculty. It is not possible for us to understand the Bible on our own. Right? Many of you have been to various Bible groups in the past. Some of you to small groups. Some of you to discipleship groups, right? Where you're interacting with one another on a personal level and you're discussing the Bible potentially in groups of three or five or twelve. I'm sure if you've been in in the church for any length of time, it's interesting how you see so many different kinds of people have different interactions and different responses to God's word, right? Where there are some, where they're looking at God's word and there is a purpose to their study. There is a delight and a joy as they talk about God. They, They think about their life in this whole different way where there's purpose and determination how they're trying to seek after God and delight in his word. But we also know there's a lot of people that come to Bible studies. They read the Bible. They interact in the church with sort of this glaze in their eyes. And they don't really care. They'll they'll talk about it because maybe they have to or they were invited to a group. But they they don't read it with this sense of spiritual understanding. There isn't a joy. There isn't a purpose behind their reading. And what Paul is trying to say is, is because God has to be the one that helps us understand. That if God is not working in us on a spiritual depth, then we can read the Bible, but that will just be like alphabet soup to us. It'll be like reading a foreign language. It's not something that we will be able to grasp the depths of the profoundness of. 
But Paul is praying for that very reason. He's saying that as you even hear his words, as he's speaking about the truth of election, about God's sovereignty, as you hear about the, the redemption that we have in Jesus Christ, you must understand this, and it must be God that helps you understand it. That is why he prays for us as, as believers that we would know the truths and the depths of what he is revealing here. Because it is through understanding the depths of God's word that we grow in a relationship with God. Right? Look at verse 17. He's praying that we would grow in the wisdom and the revelation of the knowledge of God. And what that means is this. It is as you grow in the depths of understanding of the scriptures that you come to have a relationship with God. That as you understand what it is that God has done for us, the profoundness of what he has done for us, that you then grow in a relationship with him, in a closeness with him. And I think you understand this even on an intuitive level. I think about the relationships that you have with people around you, your friends, your family, your coworkers. The way that you best come to know the people around you is by what they do, right? As you see their actions, as you see how they interact in different situations, both good and both bad, you come to truly understand another, per another person. And I best understood this principle when I saw my, my, my dad go through a disease. Uh, my dad had this skin disease. It was an autoimmune sort of thing, where for a while, uh, his entire body was inflamed like crazy. His skin would shed almost nonstop. He was extremely bloated, extremely swollen all over. And this was in a period where I was actually on the East Coast in college. And so I couldn't see him on a very regular basis. We would try to Skype or video chat once a week, but my video cam was so bad that when I saw him, I just saw this kind of blurry red mass. It almost reminded me of like Bob the Tomato from VeggieTales. I looked at him and I kind of understood that that was my dad, but I didn't really understand because the quality was too bad. But eventually when I got to see him in person, when I understood what it is that he went through, I realized just how horrific it was. See, his skin shed so often and so rapidly that he was in so much pain that he actually de-aged about 10 years physically. Now, when I got back from college on one of my breaks, I saw him and he looked like a totally different person. He looked like what he looked like when I first met him, when my parents first got married. He literally de-aged about 10 years. But that wasn't as much of a blessing as it was a curse. He went through so much agony, so much pain. But what I loved about my dad during this time is that I realized just how little he was complaining. That though he went through nonstop agony, Pain that started from the moment he woke up to the moment he went to bed and even would wake him up in the middle of the night. He would continue in the kindness that I saw. He continued being the, the gentle and kind man that I always knew him to be. And so it was through seeing him go through this whole process that I got to better understand my dad, not as my father, but as a man. There's times where you better understand a person in a whole new light because you see what they do and you see what they go through, right? And it is the same way with God. It is by understanding what it is that he has done for us, what he does in redemptive history, that we come to best understand him and know him personally. 
It's through understanding what God did through his election and redemption and inheritance that we understand his character. That by understanding what he has done for us, that we come to know his wisdom over all things. That we come to understand his grace and his mercy, which he extends to all of us sinners. That we come to understand the justice that characterizes all that he does. That we come to understand the love that he has for us as his sons and his daughters. And we come to understand his faithfulness. That though we may sin against him time and time again, he has already made our election sure. It is through understanding what God has done, what Paul is revealing in the letter of Ephesians, that we grow in the knowledge of God. That we grow in a relationship with God. And this is why Paul prays for us. This is why Paul prays that we would understand the depths of what God has done for us. That even as he started the letter, God has already given us everything, right? It's not that we're missing anything, but he has given us every blessing under the heavenly realms. And so it is our job to understand what it is that he has given us. And yet we will not be able to understand the blessings that we have because we are fallen. The only way we will truly relish and truly appreciate what God has done is if he gives us understanding. And that is why we pray. That is why Paul prays for us. That is why we pray for ourselves and for one another that we would grasp the depths of what God has given us. See, church, as you hear the word of God, if you read it and you feel like you're just reading a book, you feel so uncompelled. One, that could be an indication that you're not saved. Or two, that could be an indication that you are relying on your own strength. That you are not begging God to help you understand what it is that he has revealed. Because it is an act of God alone by which we can come to truly appreciate him. That we can truly understand what it is that he has done for us. It's the only way that we can truly worship the Lord. And that's why Paul prays. And as we go into the second half of the section, verse 18 and verse 19, you see how there are really three different areas that Paul prays for. He's praying that we would understand hope and inheritance and power. Right, look with me at verse 18 and verse 19. Paul is praying that we would have a spirit of revelation, the knowledge of him, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the work of his great might. I'm going to spend a little bit of time breaking down each of these three truths. First, you see how Paul is praying that we would know the hope to which he has called you. The hope that we have as Christians. When we think about hope, as we've said oftentimes here in the pulpit, we're not talking about some kind of wish where we don't know if it's going to happen. Now, there's a lot of people that today are hoping that there's not going to be any more power outages in Southern California. And yet, as we probably know, that's not going to happen. And yet we can hope for something, right? We can hope that you will win the lottery. You can hope that you're going to get that job that you're really wanting. But in all these cases, our idea of hope today is really an uncertain belief. You desire for something that you don't know if you're going to get or not. But friends, that's not how hope is seen in the Bible. When you talk about hope, it is certainty 
of anticipation. What it means to have hope is that you know that something is true 100%. And because of that certainty, you are excited. You are anticipating the future. You cannot wait for the future. I want you to imagine for a second, as if in two days, you know that you are going to have your next child. Or maybe some of you, that's not a good thing. But imagine that for some of you, it is, right? That you are excited about having that child. You know that that baby is coming in two days and you can't wait for it. Or maybe for a moment that you know in two days, you have bought your first home and you are finally moving into your dream house, whatever that may look like, right? You are excited to move in. There would be an anticipation. There would be a giddiness in you because you can't wait to get into that new place. Or imagine that you are longing for going on this dream vacation that you have thought about for weeks and months. You've, you've got it. It's all expenses paid. And in two days, you will finally be able to go on that vacation. And you are just, you can't wait for it. That's all you're thinking about. For all of those different examples, that is kind of like the idea of biblical hope. What it means is that we know for sure what God has done. We know for sure where we are going. What it means is that we know for sure what it is that God has given us. That we have eternal life. That we have freedom from the judgment of hell. That we know that we are going to inherit God's very kingdom. Have all the blessings of God. What it means to hope is that we know that these things are true. And we just can't wait for it. That we are anticipating it. We are looking forward to it. We know that we have everything from God, and therefore we have hope. As you hear in Romans 5, 2, through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. We rejoice in our hope. We know what is coming, and therefore we are praising the Lord, saying, God, come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. I cannot wait to be in your presence. I cannot wait to be in your kingdom, because that is why we are here on this earth. We are just waiting for the coming day. And so Paul prays that we would understand this hope. See, the reality is we do have hope, and yet sometimes, right, we feel discouraged. We feel bleak. We feel like life is not going in the way that we want it to. We can feel like the world is against us and every decision you are trying to make in a positive way is turning into a negative way. We can feel hopeless. We can feel discouraged. And the answer is not to gain something tangible on this earth. The reality is that we do have hope. It is just that we need to understand the hope that God has already given us. We must pray for that understanding. And then secondly, in verse 18, Paul prays that we may know the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And this is, I think, a very misunderstood passage oftentimes. If you were to go back to verse 11 of this first chapter, you see how Paul is saying that we as Christians, we on this earth, we are the inheritors. We are the ones that will inherit God's kingdom. We will gain something from God. But verse 18 here is actually something different. Notice the wording here. He says, The riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. His glorious inheritance in the saints. And this is the opposite of what Paul has just said. What this is saying here 
is that God is the one who inherits us. That God, as he elected us, as he redeemed us, as he has sealed us with the Holy Spirit, all of that was done so he could bring us to himself. And so the picture is really that God is the one that is inheriting us. He is delighted in inheriting us. As you hear in 1 Peter 2, 9, he says this, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. There is a sense in which God is delighted. He is pleased. He is joyful in his ability to bring us to himself. What that means is that we are the apple of his eye. That Christians are his chosen people. That God delights in having us. That we have worth and value as his sons and daughters. That God, when he sees us who are his redeemed, his chosen ones, his purchased ones, he looks at us with joy and delight because he knows that we are his inheritance. And I hope you understand this, right? It's not because we are so naturally awesome people. God doesn't delight in receiving us because he says, look how awesome these people are. Look how faithful they are. Look how amazing they are. Not at all. But he delights in inheriting us because when he sees us as Christians, he sees the righteousness of Christ. That because we as Christians are united with Jesus, that we are in Christ, you think about the perfect life that Jesus lived on this earth, and that counts for us. That the reason that God can look at us and be pleased and be delighted in receiving us as his inheritance is because when he sees us, he sees Jesus. That when he looks at us, he sees the loveliness, the perfection of Jesus Christ. And therefore, he is delighted in having us. Aren't there times where you think about yourself and you can feel just so worthless? You can feel like you don't have value. You can feel ugly or you can feel unwanted. You just feel like you and yourself, there is nothing good in you. And on a human level, you're probably right. All of us are unworthy before God. But the truth that Paul is bringing to our attention here is that in Jesus Christ, we now have value. That in Jesus Christ, we are worthy of redemption. And in Jesus, God can therefore inherit us. This is an amazing, amazing truth. And this is why Paul prays that we would grasp it, that we would understand what it is that we have. There's a third thing that he prays for, and this is verse 19. Paul prays that we may know the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. The immeasurable greatness of his power. Paul's saying that you can't even fathom how much power is working in you. You cannot even grasp the power that God is working in you, the extent to which he has changed you. And if you have your Bibles open, I want you to just look one verse ahead. This is how Paul describes the power working in us. 
He says the power working in us is the power that he worked in Christ Jesus when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Far above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Do you guys see what Paul is saying here? This is an amazing truth. He's saying that the power that works in you as a believer is the same power that worked in Jesus Christ. It is the power that raised him from the dead. We understand it is very easy to take a human life, right? Every one of us is fragile. We are just one small misstep. We are just one small disease from our life being over. But there is only one power that can restore life. That God alone has the power to raise someone from the dead. And that because Jesus was God, he was able to be risen from the dead. And the Father has used that power to raise Christ from the dead. And that is the power that works in you as a believer. That is the power that God has put in every single Christian. And this this is also the power that God has used to exalt Jesus over the heavens. We don't have time to explain the rest of this chapter. There is so much here, but I just want to go over it briefly. It's the idea that after God raised Jesus from the dead, that Jesus is now sitting at the Father's right hand. He is in the throne of power. He is in the place of exaltation. And he is above every name that is to be named. Jesus has been exalted over everything to be supreme, to use the power that is intrinsically his. And that power that the Father used to exalt Christ to his right hand is the same power that works in you. That if you are a Christian, that is the power that is dwelling in you, that God has used in you. See, this would have been so encouraging for the people of Asia Minor. This was a land of cults and sorcery and magic and demons and all sorts of spirits. People spent their years, they spent their monies trying to conjure up the demons, trying to conjure them to do their very bidding. And even though the people in Asia Minor, in Ephesus and the surrounding area, though they were Christians, there was very much a real fear of the power of spirits. And so to those people, this word would have been so encouraging. In a culture that was dominated by fear, a culture that is dominated by agony over all these other spiritual beings, that they could believe that the same power that raised Christ from the dead, the same power that seated him at the Father's right hand, the same power that was used in Jesus Christ is the power that now works in you. You no longer need to fear anything else. And this has so many ramifications for how we live, doesn't it? Because it means that we can now live in full boldness as we pursue the Christian life. That God's power is working us in a miraculous way. It's as you see in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Peter says, His divine power has been granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. That because God's power works in us, we now have the ability to live this Christian life. He has given us all things pertaining to life and godliness. And this means that we can now take heart. 
that whatever issue you are going through, you know that God is with you. That if you are struggling with anxiety and depression and hopelessness, you believe and you know that God's power is working in you and you can indeed overcome those issues. That if you are struggling with some kind of sin that seems like it's been affecting you for so long, you believe that God's power is in you and that in his strength, you have the ability to overcome whatever the issue is. If you are facing some kind of broken relationships, if you're looking forward to Thanksgiving and Christmas with anxiety because you don't want to be around your family anymore, or you don't think that they can ever be saved and they are too far gone, that you believe that God's power is working in you and that therefore God can indeed do that which you did not believe in. That when you understand the power that is working in you, which Paul so elaborates on, this gives you the confidence to pray boldly. That you don't pray in in generalities and in timidity thinking, maybe God will help me with this. Maybe he has the power to do this. But that you believe that God has every single ability to accomplish his will. That if you pray for his will, he will answer that prayer. If you so pray in faith, And that is why we pray. This is why Paul calls us to pray. This is why he prays that we would understand the hope of our calling as Christians. This is why he prays that we would understand God's inheritance of us. This is why he prays that we would understand the power that is working in us. Because we have every spiritual blessing under the heavenly places. Just as he opened up this letter. God has given us everything. The issue is not that we are lacking anything. The reality is we must understand what it is that we have in Jesus Christ. And this is why we must pray. See, the fact of the matter is that God indeed has given us everything. And yet oftentimes we are so blind, aren't we? I mean, haven't you gone through seasons of life where you look back and it was like you had an epiphany moment. You realized just how God was with you every step of the way. Where where you have this moment where you understand that God did not abandon you, but he has always been with you. See, the way that we come to recognize and appreciate and be grateful for all of these blessings, that only comes through God giving us insight. That just as you're going through the gospel of Mark and you see how the disciples are slowly coming to understand who Jesus is. That whereas we get to chapter 8 and Peter makes the confession that Jesus, you are the Christ. Even as you see their understanding grow and grow, that is what must happen to us. But just because you're a Christian, it doesn't mean that you're suddenly all good. It doesn't mean that when you read your Bible, you can understand it perfectly perfectly. That depth of understanding, that maturity, that conviction must come from God. And it is something that we must beg God for every single day of this earth. As you know, it is easy to get in this state of complacency. It's easy to get in this place of life where you're just going through the motions, that you are just reading your Bible and going to church and living your life as you've always done. And it is in those moments where you need to heed Paul's prayer. That you must too pray for understanding. That you would beg God to help you understand him. Because what Paul is really saying is that we have everything we need 
for contentment in this life. The answer to our issues is not in gaining something new, but joy and contentment are wrapped up in understanding what we already have. So if you are thinking that I just need that next promotion, I just need a little bit more money, I just need to be able to buy a house for my family, if you are running to anything else other than Jesus, well, you're not going to be able to find what you're looking for. Because Paul says in the letter of Ephesians that we have everything in God. We have everything that we need. We have the riches of his blessings. And so you no longer need to live thinking, I just need to find something new. You need to instead recognize what it is that you already have in Jesus Christ. Because in Jesus, you already have more than any unbeliever. Even a man like William Hurst could ever fathom. God has given us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And the question for us is this. Do you understand the riches that God has given you? Are you amazed at the blessings that you have as a Christian? Do you marvel every single day at what God has done in you? Because if not, Paul says that you need to pray. If you are chasing what you already have, you need to pray. Because God has given us everything. And so I hope and I encourage you that as you are thinking about today, as you think about your time during lunch this afternoon, as you think about this next week coming up, as you think about the holidays, a time in which are so filled with materialism, so much focus on self-centeredness, that you would instead realize what God has given you. And that you would pray for yourself. You would pray for one another, just as Paul prays for us. And with that, let's pray to our God. Lord, we confess just so naturally how often our understanding is blinded by our sinful nature. That though, God, you have indeed given us every blessing through our salvation, we are so often blind, that we are so often discontent from these truths. And so we pray, just as Paul prays, that you would give us wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of you, that the eyes of our hearts would be open for enlightenment. That as we read your word, as we spend time together as the church discussing your scriptures, that you would so penetrate our hearts. That we would read with a greater understanding, a greater appreciation, and a greater worship of you. We thank you, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.